0: What's up? Jill Mott, how's it going? This new studio space that our landlords from the studio world shoved us into is actually pretty great.
1: <laughs> it's good. It's smaller yet roomier, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I feel like we're less
0: cramped,
1: mm-hmm. um, yet Way the less. square
0: footage is a little bit smaller.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. A little echoey as well. Echo, echo, echo. Thanks, Sam, for making us sound so good. That's his job. He does an amazing job of it, making us sound Fantastic, Mr. Sam Keenan, our producer. So today we're going to talk about Lebanon, Lebanese music from me, a Lebanese composer, and then two, count it, two Lebanese trumpeters. And you're going to talk about something I, of course, yet again, had never heard of before until you brought this idea to the table. So what is Arak?
0: Well, the idea came because I'm missing a few friends that I have from Lebanon, I have a friend from Egypt who loves Arak. A-R-A-K is the um, anglicized spelling. A-R-A-Q is the Arabic spelling. And it's an anise-flavored spirit. I'll just leave it at that for now. We'll go into details later. And whenever I'm hanging out with this friend from Egypt, I would say 50% of the time we will eat and drink something. And sometimes it's tea, sometimes it's a little like a light martini. It's just, you kind of, sometimes it's wine, but There is a high percentage that he's going to pull out the Arak. And it's, you know, Arak is mostly of Lebanese nature. It just made me really, I was just yearning for these, not only the flavors of meze, which is like the Turkish, Egyptian, Levant uh, version of North African version of like tapas, where you got like lots of different foods all over. Oh, a little appetizer situation. Yep, for sure. And you can totally make a whole meal on meze. And I love those flavors so much, and I make some of that food, but I can't make it like a lot of my Lebanese, Egyptian, et cetera, et cetera, friends, right? Yes. Um, but I'm missing Arak. So I thought, wow. I was like, Emily, do you, do you know a lot about Lebanese <laughs> composers or any Lebanese this or that? And you found some really cool examples. I loved listening to the playlist.
1: Yeah, the playlist was great. And it's, again, it's just another collision of cultures, which it... it It's collision isn't even really an appropriate way to say it because collision implies, you know, two different things crashing into each other but not combining, right? So, this is a brilliant combination of cultures, is a better way of looking at it because the composer we'll talk about today, Walid Gomi or Walid Gomie, depending on how you choose to pronounce it, felt very passionately about educating the people of Lebanon on Western classical music. Uh, And so he was very active in the education, music education, teaching at the conservatory, leading the conservatory, and then establishing two different orchestras uh, in that country that are still in operation. Uh, He just passed away in 2011, so not that long ago. And so we'll hear a couple different of his symphonies, and then we'll hear from a trumpeter, a Lebanese trumpeter, who invented, well, co-invented, he helped an instrument maker invent a trumpet that could play in quarter tones, which we've talked about, I think, a couple different times before as being a part of Eastern culture and Eastern music, I should say, uh, so this trumpet has four valves, which there are other four valved trumpets, but this particular fourth valve allows for the player to play in quarter tones, which is not a part of Western music. so so
0: like different you're saying like notes that technically are maybe instead of they're like between an F and an F sharp say
1: yes gotcha. exactly yep that's okay. exactly what I mean. So cool. it's a really interesting beautiful sound, especially to hear on a modern trumpet. And so we'll hear from the man who co-invented that and his son, who is a very active trumpeter in the world as well. So it, that's kind of where I'm going to go today. Is
0: the Malouf name, is one of them Ibrahim? I don't know if it's the
1: father or son. Ibrahim is the Ibrahim? son.
0: Okay. Yep. I've heard of him before and I've heard very little of his music, but it's really, really cool. And its I think it sounds just as contemporary as it does it just is like fishing a lot of those old, I guess, yeah, notes. I shouldn't say old notes, but notes mm-hmm. that harken back to like traditional music. Yeah, ooh, I can't wait to see one Yeah, you've yeah pulled
1: totally. Out. So we'll end with, with that end of it, but uh, we'll start off today with a little Walid Golmier.
0: Let's mm-hmm. taste some Arak, shall we? That sounds great. Um, I'm, I'm actually just going to pour the smallest bit in your glass just to smell. Okay. More than drinking it for the alcohol right now, I want to smell it. Because it's such a, it's a lot like, uh, what can I think of that's like this? It's a lot like mezcal, where when you smell it, just smelling it gives you energy.
1: And you almost
0: don't even need to drink it. So I just want to preface. Let's just give you a little boop.
1: weird. It's a weird bottle. It's a really weird bottle. It's a really
0: beautiful bottle. It's really dark aqua blue. Well, first of all, here cheers to scores and pours. To scores and pours. This is just a feel for, you know, you don't need to drink it. And if you do just have the smallest little bit to wet your lips because it is strong. And I'll just get into a brief, a brief snippet of what the spirit, its origins,
1: um, a little bit about what to expect, but I'm going to take a little sip first. And you said anise-flavored, which licorice, yes. I did. But
0: let's first go... Let's talk geography, right? Let's talk first and foremost about this spirit being a spirit that really resonates with the cultures in and around Turkey, Greece. You know, Lebanon is sort of isolating it to one country because it's all around the Levant, um, is what we would say. But nowadays present day when you say Arak, anybody that's drinking a high quality Arak, they're going to know it's Lebanese. Because if we're speaking about an anise-flavored spirit that uh, you may not know the origin of, like historically, they would that could be from Greece. It could be from Turkey. But nowadays, Arak, Lebanon, Raki or Raki is the, the word that we would use for an anise-flavored spirit that's made in Greece or Turkey or elsewhere.
1: Okay. So there are other spirits flavored with anise that have different names from different regions.
0: Correct. Correct. And different countries. Yep. So okay. Raki is Greece, is Turkey, Uzo, Greece. But when you say Arak, that's, you know, there's a lot of bad Arak and Arak that's not regulated that can come from those Places and they can be sweetened and they can be herbed or spiced and stuff. Later, when we when everybody knows what the hell we're talking about, then I'll tell you about the regulations and why this is just a really thought provoking but very artisanal product um, because there is a lot that that is managed and that is checked on to make sure that this is of high quality and does hail from Lebanon. But let's just say Lebanese arak, Raki, anise flavored elsewhere. So tell me more about this Golmier because I'm very intrigued with what I, the music that you forwarded me.
1: Yeah, it's such great music. Uh, Wali Golmier, born in 1938, as I mentioned earlier, he passed in 2011, and he for a time was the director of the Lebanese National Higher Conservatory of Music, and uh, I also mentioned he founded two orchestras. One was the Lebanese National Symphony Orchestra, which. Existed, but was a very small chamber orchestra. We've talked about the difference between a chamber orchestra and a symphony orchestra, mostly being size, but also can be instrumentation. Usually in a chamber orchestra, it's usually just strings and a handful of woodwinds. You usually don't have a full, you know, fleet of brass and percussion in a chamber orchestra, although you do find it from time to time. But still, uh, it was this tiny little organization, musical organization, and he ended up uh, growing it into a full symphony orchestra, the Lebanese National Symphony Orchestra.
0: And I imagine that's located in Beirut? Yes. Cool.
1: And he also founded the Lebanese National Arabic Oriental Orchestra, which is kind of shortened now to Lebanese Oriental Orchestra. And so those two ensembles he founded, and he wrote a, a lot of music across a wide variety of uh, media. Like he wrote for stage, concert, orchestra, he wrote six symphonies, but he also did film and television. He wrote music for educational videos, things along those lines.
0: What were the symphonies, were they more like a Western, inspired by Western, you know, that you, ear and that tone? Well, or
1: was it- I mean, th- I would say in f- form and construct... Yes, these were Western-inspired because, of course, the term is a Western term. Okay. But we get this blend, this combination of scales and tonality that he is familiar with, but also without quarter tones often in his symphonies. So it still sounds like something you'd recognize, but you might... If you've listened to a lot of world music, you might think, oh, that sounds kind of Middle Eastern or Arabic, you know? And that's because of the scales, but he's, again, in in most of his symphonies, you don't hear those quarter tones, but you can still feel the influence of the area, if that makes sense. Totally. So let's go ahead and listen to his fourth symphony. This is his uh, symphony called the Symphony of Devotion, and it's also subtitled The Martyr, and it's in E flat major. So here we go
0: it sounds like we're listening to it on an old 36 the way it's being you know, yeah the,
1: the hiss for one thing the hiss the hiss on the recording is excessive mm-hmm. <laughs> This recording is from the early, from, like, 1970 or 71. This fourth symphony, to me, starts more traditionally than some of his others okay Um, and in some ways it's almost to me like one of the more Western symphonies that he wrote but he has this really great way of combining instruments and so in a minute we'll listen to the second movement which is really fun because there's a lot of low double reeds and low woodwinds that, that are really fun and bring up a really nice texture
0: This, to me, it sounds a lot like, at least it did before all this pretty stuff started happening, <laughs> um, it reminds me a lot of like a, a film noir or something that's coming out of Catalonia or southern France, oh, like, doing well, just like surrealist cinema, you know? Interesting. Um, and this yeah. could also, just as long as it's not too flowery, you know, it needs to have something that sounds like something's going to get cut open, and then it's going to be turned into art somehow.
1: <laughs> sounds patriotic it does and i would almost say noble and what cracks me up is talk about nerdy when i heard this and <laughs> I, I don't have perfect pitch so i can't unless i know what key a symphony is and i can't hear a symphony without knowing what symphony it is and be like oh that sounds like it's in f-sharp major i can kind of get kind of close but i don't really know And so when I was listening to this the first time, I was like, wow, it's so regal and noble. I wonder if it's in E-flat, which is the key of nobility from the Age of Enlightenment and, you know, early classical period. And And effectively, you were correct. And it is in E-flat. I assume he knew that connection um, because he was so studied Mm -hmm. in classical music. So I I thought that was really interesting, especially when you compare it to some of his other symphonies and different keys that don't sound like that at all. So, but we'll hear the second movement in, in a little bit.
0: Well, and, th- and speaking of studying, thank you all to our listeners for studying along with us. Yes. Because, I, you know, at Scores and Pours here, this is as much about relaxing and learning and maybe sipping on something and listening and enjoying. But in the end, just like Emily and I, you're probably geeks <laughs> and you probably like you some study time. Yes. So thanks for studying along with us. For those of you who love Scores and & Pours and want to support us financially, you can do it on our website, patreon.com slash scoresandpours, and you'll find really cool different levels that you can belong to, to get patron-only content, to get some free merch in some cases. So uh, check it out. We, we could not do this without our existing patrons.
1: We're very thankful for your support. You can also find us on Instagram. We're at scoresandpours, and if you have any ideas for shows or any questions, just drop us a line there. A DM at scores and pours on Instagram. And please do also, uh, if you could just take a second and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts, that'd be super cool.
0: I loved how you said, if you have any show ideas, like you, <laughs> you're not influenced by Minnesota. Minnesota, Duh, are Minnesota.
1: You? <laughs> Good Lord. Oh, man.
0: And I just want to mention, too, if you, of course, if um, it's not a good time to become a patron on patreon.com slash scores and pours, then consider this uh, our gift to you and enjoy it. That's what Emily and I are here for.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Is to drink and listen to music and you get to learn about it. (laughs) (laughs) Should I uh, maybe kind of give you a little bit more detail into the world of... uh,
1: yeah, I wanna. Uh, I'm. I'm so intrigued by this difference between anise and black licorice, and so I, I'm really excited to like taste those for one thing.
0: You'd have thought that I set Emily up, but I didn't. That's just <laughs> we're just like co-host. Yo, yo, yo. I'm like pointing in my eyes, pointing <laughs> in Emily's eyes. Like that was a good setup. Okay, so what I did was I went to my local co-op and I picked up a little bit of anise seed and a little bit of licorice root because they are much different. And what I Despise more than anything in the drinks world is when someone says, I don't like this, therefore I'm not gonna like X spirit or X spirit or whatever, Y spirit, whatever. Yeah. And the reason why is okay, think about this. I get that people don't like black licorice. I flip and hate black licorice. My yeah. mom's one of my mom's best friends loves black licorice and gets these like super expensive black licorice artisanal candies and I'm like gross. No. That's <laughs> nasty. Do I try one every time? Sure, cuz maybe my taste will change. But the thing is is also what is our association with it? I'm at the movies. I'm at a park with friends and we're share- you know we're like mm-hmm. you're not drinking Arak at the movies no when you're craving something sweet this is not sweetened no. right so this is meant to be consumed with food the meza that I talked about not all the time but most of the time people are enjoying this in good company mm-hmm. and with food so the concept is completely different than black licorice second of all the way it's consumed we'll taste it in a little bit and we'll talk about how it's actually preferred uh, by a lot of people that seriously drink a lot of Arak, um, you know, people from Lebanon.
1: In terms of like on ice. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks
0: for clarifying. It's normally consumed with a little water and a little ice. So... Do you want to sip it straight? Maybe once in a while, but mm-hmm. it's it's meant to just be this sort of casual experience that's diluted. It is a little bit ceremonious yeah. in how and how people drink it. Botanically, they are different things. So shall we give these a little whirl? Yeah, so first, who's who? I would love for you to taste this one first. I'm pointing. I have these both
1: on a plate. One looks like oats from here, but my eyes are pretty bad.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're they're kind of like they look like steel-cut oats. Um now we're getting into the root, right? This is obviously we're doing this work for you. You may not want to go do this, well, but if you're geeky enough, you will. What am I eating? That's licorice root. Taste how sweet that it's is. So sweet. Okay. Now maybe get maybe get one of these other before you take a drink. I know you're wanting to get one of these. I don't know if you got one of these guys because we. I think you got a little bit of like uh kind of something stemmy. Get one of these big chunks. So you taste how that kind of tastes like licorice, but it tastes kind of rooty. But it's sweet mm-hmm. more than it's anything. It's really
1: very um, shockingly sweet.
0: Okay. Now, get a little bit of the anise seed or anise. Some people say anise.
1: Whoa. That, see, and that's interesting because I greatly dislike black licorice. I do not like that seed that I just ate. Mm -hmm. But when I tasted the arak, it was such a delicious, like, burst of flavor. Mm -hmm. And I can tell it's from this, but it's... Weird. Do you Weird. taste?
0: Do you taste how less sweet? Like yeah. the anise seed has no no sweetness at all. Yeah. There are people that have tried to quantify, and there are studies that say that licorice root is approximately a hundred times sweeter than anise seed. Wow. And keep in mind that when you're buying your, you know, Twizzlers or whatever you're buying, that's probably they're not going out and digging up actual licorice root. Right. They're probably like. Creating a flavor a la mm-hmm. Jolly Ranchers and all kinds of candy the world the world around licorice flavor that comes from a compound so these they're two botanically they're different things right yeah and so which means the compounds that give them their that quote unquote licorice flavor is different licorice's flavor comes from a compound called glycyrrhizin pardon me if I'm pronouncing that wrong glycyrrhizin. And anise seeds derive their flavor from a compound called anatole, A-N-E-T-H-O-L-E, anatole, which is more closely related to fennel than it is to licorice root. And so when you taste these, it does kind of taste like that little bit of fennel seed that you get in an Italian sausage or Mm -hmm. in a chili or something. Um, And I personally, do I want to like have this a soup of this? I don't, but do I want it like just sprinkled into things? I do, and a lot of people... We'll eat fennel seed, anise seed, just whole after dinner because it's very digestive. Oh,
1: I find it interesting that the anise seed tastes more like black licorice than the licorice root does. The licorice root, just to
0: explain it to you folks at home, and we'll include a photo online so you can reference that on our Patreon page. But the anise seeds, are they look a lot more uh, uniform compared to the licorice root, looks a lot more... Sort of like they're different colors. Some are dark, some are light. They're definitely not uniform in size. Um, whereas the uh, anise seed is is quite a quite a bit more uniform. I'm actually going to dig more into this liquor root. Interesting, even though
1: it's uh, texturally really annoying. It's kind of like grainy and it's kind of woody, like mm-hmm. almost like cinnamon or something like that. Like you're chewing on a branch. Oh, that's so fucking sweet. It's really sweet.
0: Wow, I'm,
1: mm-hmm. I'm done with that until I drink. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, all right. Well, let's listen to that second movement, and then we can uh, mix up a cocktail, shall we? Well, yeah. not a cocktail. We'll we'll drink we'll drink arak the correct way.
1: That sounds amazing. So we'll listen to the second movement of this fourth symphony by Walid Golmier, and the recording singular that I could find of it anywhere online was not broken up into movements. So it's just one big long track for. The symphony. I don't know if that's how he composed it, or if he want would have preferred it to be tracked out. You know, normally if a yeah. symphony's got four movements, mm-hmm. you'll get four tracks, right? Yep. So this is just one big long one.
0: Is it spaced out? Do the musicians actually stop? Yeah, kind of you know, a few. But times. I mean, you
1: can tell it's a product of the way the recording was cut together. Okay. I knew you'd love this bassoon.
0: Yeah, I heard this in the car uh, coming home after hanging out with my dad, and I was like, yes, thank you, Emily Reese, <laughs> for uh, including not only an amazing Lebanese piece, yes, but that has a bassoon, virtually a bassoon solo.
1: And I'm pretty sure it's also got a contrabassoon in it. There's definitely a bass clarinet at the very least. Mm-hmm. We've got English horn in here, we've got oboe, there's clarinet, and saxophone as well, Uh, eventually, not right now that we're hearing, but eventually. And it's a beautiful second movement that he brings themes back from the first movement, from this movement, you hear it later in the symphony as well. Um, And this melody repeats many, many times. So if you think of... You know, it's not really a theme in variations because the theme isn't getting varied beyond the accompaniment of it is mm-hmm. getting varied. It's more like uh, Bolero without the Bolero rhythm, right? So okay. if you think of Maurice Ravel's Bolero where those melodies just repeat over and over and over yeah. again, you don't call Bolero a theme in variations, really. So, I mean, you can, I guess. I mean, why yeah. Did, why do people not? Well, I mean, you can. I, don't, I shouldn't have said that because that could get me in trouble. You can call it a theme in variations, but a lot of times in a theme in variations, the theme is going to get way more varied than what we're hearing now. Okay. We're going to hear that melody the same over and over again. But I just love the feel of this, and it's just very kind of relaxed and intimate, mm-hmm. you know. And and I I love it. So this builds and builds, and then there's a middle section, and then this kind of comes back to wrap up wrap up the second movement. But uh, anyway, do you
0: want to like fast forward? Yeah. to more of one of the symphonies after yeah. we drink a little more?
1: Yeah, we'll totally. We'll listen to a little bit of his first symphony, which is pretty great cool. uh, in in just a minute. But yeah, let's, let's have prepare more rock. Let's prepare a proper Arak. That sounds great.
0: Arak is generally served with water and ice. Why? Because the regulations state that it has to be between 40 and 63% alcohol, strong, yeah, most sodaks chime in at between fifty and sixty percent. Wow! And the common ratio to when you're when you're ordering an arak and mixing it yourself is about one third arak to two thirds water. Now, when you order arak, uh, it may come already poured in a glass, just so you're not like drinking the house. All the house is arak, right? But you would pour the arak first, and then you'll be served like a pitcher for water and ice to add however much you want. Rarely oh. does Arak come with ice already in it or mm-hmm. water already in it. Now, the order is very important. You're never going to do just ice with Arak, or most Arak drinkers would say that's kind of a faux pas. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it actually will create a film on the top, And it, but as long as you have Arak that's mixed with a little water first, and then you add ice, chemically how in the, in the chemistry world of the spirits and the essential oils, because there are, are a boatload of essential oils in here from aniseed, you're going to have an absence of that film. Okay, ready? So bring your glass over here. Okay, so I put about a fingerful, an Andre the Giant fingerful, in our glasses, and now I'm going <laughs> to mix it with about two Andre the Giant fingers full of water. Usually when you see arak poured, it's like gently poured into the arak.
1: Whoa, it just turned white. It looks like watered-down milk. I just can't even, my brain can't. Why? Okay, now give it a little taste. Why did that happen?
0: We'll get there, give it a little taste. Now it's diluted, right? Yeah. Now let's put a little ice in there and make it refreshing. So we have the ice that we've used for a lot of our martini shaking. I grabbed the biggest chunks. Why? Because Arak really likes big ice cubes. It wants to dilute really slow. It doesn't want to become, it's already, you just added water. Yeah. Now we want to make it cold, but we don't want to make it Like watered down. So if you add really small ice cubes, you're probably going to be left with a pretty watered down beverage that still will taste good. It just won't have that little bit of punch.
1: I still can't get over that. It turned white.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll talk about the luge a la absinthe in a moment. To scores and pours. To scores
1: and pours. smells very anise-y. I mean, it's really refreshing and delicious. And I definitely can taste the anise, of course, obviously. I mean, a stupid thing to say, but... My point being, it definitely tastes like licorice, but not gross, like not candy, gross, disgusting black licorice that everybody hates.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. And I, I like, I diluted mine a little bit, maybe a little bit too much. I like it a little stronger because I like to sip it. If I don't notice that it's alcohol, I'm a really fast drinker. I've mentioned that on the show before, so I want it to be, I want it to taste like the arak, of course, like a little bit of that pungent flavor, because then I'll, I'll sip it, you yeah. know, a bit slower. Mm-hmm. Um, why did it turn that milky, cloudy, white
1: color? Amazing.
0: <laughs> Emily's eyes got like <laughs> I was just like, like the size like, wow. of golf balls. So that happens because think of this. Okay, we, we talked about luge when we talked about absinthe, right? Yep. When you add water to a clear spirit and it ends up turning this milky white color. Um, and that's called a luge, L-O-U-C-H-E. And why that is, is think of like peppermint essential oil. You go buy that and it's usually mixed in, it's dissolved in alcohol that preserves the essential oil and its various properties. However, it also dissolves in it, right? It's not like oil and vinegar where you shake it and it might be mixed for 30 seconds and then it's going to separate or 10 seconds going to separate. Okay. What happens is that, that can only happen once you start adding something to that alcohol, in this case water and in most cases it's water, all of a sudden, those molecules are not going to stay in suspension, and they're going to precipitate out. Wow. And so that what we're seeing is this is we're actually seeing, hell to the yes, <laughs> um, that anatole compound that I talked about. That is wow. this. We can see it in the milky white cocktail, or I should say beverage. Amazing. Uh-huh. So that anatole... I mentioned before the essential oil that's responsible for this anisey liquor, quote unquote, li- licorice flavor. Yeah, but I'm not going to say that anymore because I don't want to have that association. Yeah, that anisey flavor. What's What's interesting to note is, you know, if I were to make a cup of coffee in a French press and I were to shake that up, that would kind of dissolve the coffee. A little bit of it would dissolve, but then it would settle out by the by maybe hour one or two.
1: Coffee grounds or coffee grounds, like yeah. with
0: with coffee, right in a French press. I take, you know, I shake it up. I mm-hmm. remove the top, and you just watch the liquid will that will separate if you're not pressing it down. You follow me? Yeah. Okay. And think of uh, other things like that. If you are mixing things that will dissolve, if you leave it there, like think of wine. I buy a wine; it has sediment in the bottom. If I shake that up, it's going to kind of homogenize. Yeah. But if I leave it, it will settle within a couple days. Mm-hmm. If you leave this like this, yeah, that will not settle for weeks, if not months, depending on the Whoa. temperature of your house and humidity, and you know.
1: So it's really a blend. It really does blend.
0: It really does. Yeah, like it. It, uh, hmm. it emulsifies in such a way yeah. that it makes wow. it really hard to actually a hundred percent It precipitates out, but then it emulsifies at the same time. It's mm-hmm. not like precipitating out, but then settling, which is. Yeah fascinating. Yeah. Kind of makes me want to start an experiment. <laughs> Yum. I like you, it. Do you like this? Yeah. Because I know it's a it's a lot of people, this is a foreign flavor. And to me, all I want is I want, sorry, I'm getting really excited. I was going to use the F-bomb, but I know my parents <laughs> listen often. I want flipping lamb. I want garlicky things. Yes. This is meant for that kind of stuff because wine, yeah a lot of times is ruined by a lot of garlic, lemon, cilantro, all those really strong flavors. And what holds up to that? That. Yeah, no question.
1: It's like when I think about that, I think of wine as really delicate, but then that's not really fair because this is also delicate, Mm -hmm. but it's just more bold. You Just know. wait
0: till I tell you how it's made. You're going to flip out. Do you want... I know you're about to talk. Yeah, I am. Do you want me to alter your drink in any way? Do you want a little more ice, a little more water, a little more Arak?
1: I'm digging with it right the way it is. I think you did a fantastic job. So you want to hear another symphony real quick? Yes, I mean, not a whole one. <laughs> His symphonies are really long, by the way. They're, uh, they are are they usually hover right around an hour. Which is, I think, kind of typical of the 20th century. I mean, in the 20th century, anything goes really, but longer symphonies were a little more normal. No, I. Go ahead.
0: No, I do. I don't listen to it. That's yeah. all I was
1: going to say. All of his symphonies have names. I said there are six of them. The first one is called the Symphony of Faith. Then we have the Symphony of Will, the Symphony of Freedom, the Symphony of Devotion, which is the martyr that we listen to. Uh, the fifth one is called the Processions, and the sixth one is called the Dawn. So let's hear a little bit from his very first symphony, the Symphony of Faith, Walid Golmier. So comparing the beginning of the 4th symphony to the beginning of this, it's much more clear that this is influenced by Arabic music. Mm-hmm. But again, I find this to be a really intriguing texture he's creating with, like, cellos and basses, but also horn, French horn, kind of in the background. Kimpony. Kimpony. <laughs> Little mallet. Xylophone. Yeah.
0: This would be so cool with the right cartoon, with the right film, like as a score. This is cool.
1: It is. I would honestly just love to hear a modern performance of it. I would I go anywhere in the world to hear these symphonies live. I, I think they're absolutely amazing. Do you happen
0: to know if they're performed ever so often, or is he... A name that you—you—he's obviously well known in and around Lebanon. And if you're a composer, yeah. you know who this guy is. But uh, people that go and search out, let's go listen to Beethoven Symphony Number no. Five. Yeah. Or do you know who this guy is? Are you like?
1: I mean, I would love to know where they're performing these symphonies okay. around the world. I tried to find scores. I couldn't find scores. That doesn't mean they're not out there. Yeah. But with the amount of time I spent looking for scores because of course this is still not in public domain. This is all
0: Oh yeah. been yeah, yeah, published
1: yeah. in the last 75 years. So
0: that question was a little bit like I guess in wine terms, it's a little bit like, yeah, so if someone drinks Sauvignon Blanc, are they going to know about Arak? <laughs> that's kind of what I meant it to sound like, so I apologize if people weren't following that. Yeah, not um, at all. Yeah. Or do you need to sort of be a winemaker, a distiller, would know what Arak is, even if they're not super familiar with it, they would have heard of Arak. So That's yeah. where I
1: was going with that. This, this is definitely a deeper cut. As far as that goes, you know if.
0: You know what I got to say to that? To scores and boards. To scores and boards. We're all about let's drink the new Noir, shit, but we're also got to go into the deep cuts.
1: That's right. milk that tastes like any's.
0: Emily and I just get blasted because we're sitting here drinking
1: <laughs> Lebanese spirits. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Diluted with water, they do go down easier, which is um, a little bit, you know, got to be careful. Yeah. Do you want to know how this is made?
1: I so want to know how this is made. Because oh my that...
0: Because that... Yeah. Really, I was just thinking, like, I just wanted to hear what a mallet would sound like On a clay vessel that this is aged in. I know. Maybe we need to do that someday.
1: (gasps) Let's make music. Let's go to the Republic of Georgia, get out all the queveries and...
0: Listen to this. What would happen if jars of Arak were filled to different levels to, of course, create different notes?
1: Pitches, And then people
0: are like, you know, they would have to be like, this is my vessel. That's your vessel. That's your vessel. And someone's like, do-do-do-do-do.
1: Yes. Yes. Let's do it. All right.
0: Let's talk about how this is made. How is
1: this made?
0: Okay, first of all, do you realize, do you, you taste, there's no, it's not
1: sweet. It's not sweet, even Some a people little.
0: expect that it's going yeah, to be. Yeah, it's not. Definitely not, like Uzo's super sweet, and that's why a lot of people have really oh. bad hangovers when you have like one or two. Interesting. Oh, I would say many people that, that drink Arak with their Meze, you know, they're not sitting slamming it down, but over the course of like a nice peaceful, beautiful session of like hanging with their homies, they might drink two or three of these. And it's not usually, it's not one ounce, you know? I mean, they're so, and that's not to say that someone might have more of a tolerance or something. It's just the way it's consumed. It's like you're drinking it slow, you're diluting it, you're being, it's just a beautiful accompaniment, right? It's very cultural. It's very beautiful. Okay. So they're taking crushed anise seed and they're adding that during the second of Three distillations. It's required to have three distillations. And the distillations have to be made of grape brandy. So this has to be the raw material here that is the liquid is wine. And the grapes have to hail from Lebanon. Hmm. They need to be white. And they're usually from the Obédier or Merwa grapes. Those are native to. Lebanon. And Lebanon had a really interesting resurgence because they were occupied by France for well over a few decades, First World War, Second World War kind of thing. And that, you know, had obviously a lot of consequences. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: One of the very few positive things was that there was a lot of infiltration of knowledge of how to grow good grapes how to make decent wine, Mm -hmm. quality control, all of those things. Nice. And so literally Lebanon has an amazing wine culture, Hmm. incredible climate to grow grapes, getting pretty warm now with climate change. But anybody that can see, there's not a lot of natural wine that's being made, but there's a lot of wine that's being made with native yeasts that aren't, you know, they're not filtered. That's not to say all, you got to seek them out. Yep. I wanted to show this to Emily and we'll include it on our Patreon page as well. But so when this is distilled, it has to be done in either a copper still, the version of a pot still, or a stainless steel version of a pot still. And when I say pot still, what I mean is it's by the batch. So you have to do one batch, take it out, make a different batch, take it out. This is how a lot of artisanal spirits are made nowadays, but the bulk of spirits the world over are made in a what's called a continuous still, meaning I push start and that sucker goes and yeah. distills and goes through multiple distillations without me having to take things out and restart the process.
1: So what does that do for uniformity then? Does that mean that each batch is slightly different because you're purging and resetting every time?
0: Yes and no. If you're a really, really skilled distiller, you'll get it almost perfect every time. Sure. And if you're a really skilled taster, you'll be able to tell that it's almost perfect every time, right? Yeah. But the majority of people probably wouldn't be able to tell. But check this out. Okay. So that copper still, you know, a lot of times you see them and they're like scalded and jimmy-rigged and all that when they're like, I don't even want to say artisanal, when they're like really homemade. yeah. But that, that I was just showing you, that's called a karkech. And a karkech is like, this is for... Arak. Okay. And what's awesome about this, and I can't believe it, is that all of this, after all is said and done, you've harvested your grapes, your white grapes, you've made wine, now you've distilled your wine, now you've used local, very great quality anise. The anise has to be from the area. Mm -hmm. And then you distill it again a third time. Wow. And now you age it in clay for a year. Oh, in clay. In clay. That's why it was all clay with yeah, the mallets. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Amazing. I know. So this is an Arak cellar. I'm showing Emily. We'll include this as well. Yeah. It's from a really cool uh, website called Lebanon Vine. And it's probably a, a Lebanese wine site, it looks like, mm-hmm. um, that's got like they import and distribute wines. But they have a really great site that talks about, you know, it's very brief, but it has really cool pictures of like... We'll include them. We'll shout out to them. That's a typical seller that is aging Arak, and I just think it's so gorgeous, and the majority of the spirits in the world are not made as artisanally as this. Mm-hmm. And like I said, when you see Arak on a label, if it's from Lebanon, it's regulated. If you see Arak on a label and it's from, I don't know, Cyprus or Turkey or somewhere else... Not regulated. No padre. Wow. I wanted you to taste this straight just to get you wasted. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I wanted you to see, do you think that you can taste the clay here? Because that's often an argument of like in favor or against clay is like, does it inhibit the ability to, you know, note the terroir in a wine, say, or in this case, the enjoyment of a beverage?
1: Once you pointed it out, I never would have been able to come to this on my own conclusion. Not at this point in my palate growth. (laughs) Um, I feel like I could smell it.
0: Well, it's not a surprise that we can smell this, right, the clay, because this specific one from the producer Messiah that we'll talk about later in the program is aged two years in clay amphora.
1: When I taste it, the only thing I wonder is if some of those softer edges are because of the clay. But I, I really can't. Taste it and say it tastes like clay. But
0: Emily Reese, you're getting the star sticker <laughs> over here. Yes, I think you're you're a hundred percent right. Those edges have probably instead of it being like a crass any spirit, it's a yeah. little bit easier it's if you did want to sip it on its own. But then most definitely you can smell it, and yeah, you you may need to know it to smell it, but yeah. you can definitely denote that it's there for sure. I'm glad you like it.
1: I really do, and I mean, I'm I'm with you about the whole, and I know we're not supposed to talk about black licorice anymore, but I do hate it, and I still will hate it. I'll leave this room hating it. <laughs> but um, but this spirit is very special, you know? And well, I, I don't I care that look, you
0: hate I hate black licorice, too.
1: I just look forward to trying it with, with Meza. Someday. Yeah. Let's hope so. Yeah, I hope so, too. Um, so let's listen to some quarter-tone trumpet. Please. This... Famous Lebanese trumpeter, Nassim Malouf. He was born in 1941, still tootin' away. And he studied in France at the Paris Conservatory with a very famous trumpeter from the 20th century named Maurice André. And Nassim got, I guess, frustrated that you, you can make quarter tones on a brass instrument like a trumpet, You have to do it with your embouchure, with your lips and the pressure and the formation of your lips and your air, and it's very inconsistent and unreliable. So Nassim, as a trumpeter, got frustrated with not being able to play these quarter tones uh, solidly and reliably, and so he hooked up in Paris with uh, uh, an instrument maker called Selmer, very famous, internationally famous instrument maker. And in the early 60s, created this quarter-tone trumpet, which allowed him to play maqam. Maqam are scales and modes from Arabic music, and they include quarter tones. There are many, like dozens of these scales and modes, and they're built off of smaller cells of either three notes, four notes, or five notes. And if you hear them, they sound you're going to think of middle eastern music when you hear these these sounds because of those quarter tones and so uh, nasim and selmer created this instrument it's a looks exactly like a trumpet it just has a fourth valve that nasim and other people now play with their left hand as opposed to the three valves on a Whoa. trumpet being played with the right hand so oh, so
0: the fourth the fourth key yes. or note is done with Wow. with the
1: index finger on the left hand. Mhm. Which is interesting because it alters then the way that you'd need to hold the trumpet in the first place, right? Yeah. So, it's really an amazing sound. So, let's go ahead and listen to Nasim play. This is him playing an improvisation called Prière. And so here's Nasim playing his uh, quarter tone trumpet and it, you know, I guess my hope is that you can hear it and that you're comfortable enough and familiar enough with Western scales to be able to hear the notes that to your ear might sound out of tune, but they're just quarter tones. They're very much in tune with what they're supposed to be, right? So let's listen to Nassim Malouf play his quarter tone trumpet.
0: Okay. Pause quick. Pause quick. Yeah. How many listeners do you think that people that maybe played the trumpet in high school? Yeah. Me. Or (laughs) maybe they, you know, love jazz, but they, uh, besides Miles Davis and a few others, can't name a lot of jazz. I just want to know how many people would listen to that and know that that's a note that really doesn't exist in our repertoire of Western music without having an extra key
1: added I think if you listen to that out of context, you might think that something sounds not quite right, quote unquote, to the Western ear. I don't want to be, you know, colonializing language by saying something is right and wrong because it no, sounds that tune. No, no, no. But attuned, I think, like my,
0: I think my parents who listen to a lot of music, like they, my, yeah. my parents both have listened. My dad specifically has listened to a lot of blues and jazz. Yeah, I don't think my dad would listen to that. And say, like, he would think that sounds not of a, say, 1940s American jazz ilk. Yeah. But I don't think he would recognize that that note Mm -hmm. is a note that isn't, like, forced by Amish. Like, he wouldn't know that was an extra key. Right. Like, that's very powerful.
1: Yes. The thing that you would notice is if someone were trying to replicate that on a three-valved trumpet, on a traditional Western trumpet. You would then hear how difficult that is to emulate on a traditional trumpet. To hear it on a four-valve quarter-tone trumpet, I think, does really kind of require that you really know what you're listening for. You're listening for wider steps or tinier steps than you're accustomed to. It depends on which end of the step you're listening. Well, I think that just...
0: that. That you just made my point. I think is like saying if you aren't li- actively listening, yeah, and you're not familiar enough with, say, in this case, the trumpet, you're not mm-hmm. gonna you're you're gonna think it might sound a certain way, but you're not gonna know that yep. that, that note never existed
1: on the trumpet before exactly. it was invented. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. You so know, we got there. We did. <laughs> we got there. <laughs> I'm sorry, it took me a while. That's okay. We showed up. Um. So let's go ahead and listen to a little bit of his son. Then. So this is his son, Ibrahim. And his son, Ibrahim, is also a composer, does a lot of film music and other media, music for media. And this is from the album that he just released. It was either this year or last year, and it's a duo album, which is really nice. So he takes music from earlier albums, and I'm sure there's also new, new music on here too, but it's like a big double disc set or more of uh, duo versions of his music. So uh, here we go. Here's Ibrahim Malouf on his quarter-tone trumpet.
0: I mean that's like ancient and wanting to maybe kinda be jazz and then all of a sudden it becomes like folky Dave Matthews. Like that's <laughs> that's a weird assemblage of Yes of cultural exchange. Yeah.
1: hear him in this next track with an instrument called the saws which is just uh, like an oud or a guitar of sorts yeah cool this is from an older album should mention that uh, even though Ibrahim was born in Lebanon, they moved to Paris when he was very young because of the war there. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's visited many times, but I mean, for all intents and purposes, he was raised in France. So, uh, But a really amazing tradition. First of all, the trumpet in Lebanon, it's not like everyone wants to play trumpet. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So it's it's really amazing what these two have done for that instrument in that region of the world. And I, I just think it's amazing, absolutely amazing. Ibrahim is considered a jazz trumpeter. I, I think of him, obviously, yes, true, but also a world trumpeter who uses improvisation in his music to great, wonderful effect. So it's, it's not like you're going to find a recording of him playing standards like take the A train and, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, I got Which you.
1: bothered and bewildered and whatnot. But even the way he's improvising in what we were just listening to, which is called trumpet saz improvisation, uh, you know, he's still doing it from a standpoint of if an Arabic singer were improvising on the streets. So using maqam structures and cells and scales and modes. So it's really, again, it comes back to that whole idea of not being a collision of cultures, but a combination of these musical things, you know, that just blend into this world music kind of thing. That's kind of how I think of it, if that makes any more sense. No, it
0: it totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. And what's cool about talking about jazz, when we kind of came around to jazz, was the wine and arak maker here at Messiah, the last time I saw him, we hung out together and drank gin and tonics <laughs> at a jazz club in Chicago. Amazing! Um, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about this arak because it's so cool. So brothers Sammy and Ramsey Gozen, uh, they are the winemakers at Messiah, Massaya, M A S S A Y A, and. They make great white wines, rosés, they make uh, red wine, then they have like red wines that are aged in oak, and that stuff's cool, but what I really love is their really basic stainless steel red wine, and I love, love, love this Arak. It's been my favorite Arak since I tasted it. I've cooked with Ramsey, I've I've had the sincere pleasure of hanging out with him for almost too long uh, on his last visit to Chicago years ago, and... It's just a really well made arak. This arak here is 100% obedee, white grapes, and then all green anise seed. So a little bit of a unique type of anise seed and just beautifully crafted. Unfined and unfiltered. If anybody wants to see what those brothers are all about, Anthony Bourdain actually visited uh, oh, um, him back in, I think, 2000. 10 or something, uh, which is kind of cool to think about and remember because we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of Mr. Mm. Bourdain's death. And I think Anthony Bourdain visits the best of the best on all fronts, right? And um, when he visited them, he you know, tasted through the wine, ate a lot of food, wh- walked the vineyards with Sammy and Ramsey, and then they sat down and they started drinking Arak and they asked Tony, they're like, yeah, so do you know, what do you think of the Arak? And he's like, looks at his, one of his, you know, producers or directors or one of his stagehands that was sitting there with him. And he's like, well, ask this guy, cause I've already, I've been hitting on the Arak for some time now or <laughs> something like that. It's pretty great. You can YouTube it, but um, they're just cool guys and really proud of their heritage, but also making sure that people outside of Lebanon experience it as well. Because if it just stays there, a lot of people can't get there.
1: Well, thanks so much for bringing it and
0: sharing it. My pleasure, Emily Reese. To Scores and Pores. To Scores and Pores.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pores with sommelier Jill Mott and me, Emily Reese. You can find links and information, a playlist, an ARAC list. About this episode, and you can support us financially, which we would greatly appreciate, at Patreon.com/scoresandpours. Also, a merch link there for hoodies and tees. We are on Instagram at Scores and Pours, and please do consider supporting the musicians that we featured today by buying their music whenever possible. Edited by
0: Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Mr. Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of
1: June Media Inc.